So today, dear friends, we're going to look at the question of the magisterium, or if you want, the teaching office of the church. I think it's important for us to try and understand this so we can <clears throat> grasp the necessary distinctions that we need to make when we look at the present situation in the church. So firstly, what then is the magisterium? Uh, by the magisterium, we refer to the teaching office of the church, you know, without any specific reference to any particular person or age where referring to an office that is bequeathed to the church by which it rightly teaches uh, those truths uh, uh, which are necessary for salvation. However, when we uh, look at or speak about the question of the living magisterium, here we are speaking primarily of those who at any stage or st time in history are exercising the office of teaching in the church. and. And this normally is done by the Pope and the bishops in their teaching capacity as the legitimate successors of the Apostles. We do need to then examine this question of the Magisterium in order to understand its uh, limitations and regards to what it deals with and to uh, grasp uh, what its uh, uh, scope is. Hence, uh, when we speak of the Magisterium, uh, keep in mind that uh, what we previously said, that uh, not all that the Pope uh, teachers is infallible and so this being the case not every exercise of his teaching authority uh, is uh, binding uh, in an absolute sense hence when we speak of the ordinary magisterium we are speaking of the ordinary exercise of the pope's office as teacher this uh, magisterial authority then is called the uh, ordinary magisterium however there is also what we call the extraordinary magisterium and this refers to uh, those times when they, uh, in a general council uh, the Pope defines or ratifies uh, a doctrine that he intends to bind uh, upon the whole church. And so in short, the magisterium refers to the voice of the church echoing the same message throughout the ages, even if uh, there be a living voice uh, that is exercising it at uh, any given time in history. The ordinary and universal magisterium is what is uh, carried out on a daily uh, basis uh, through the uh, continuous preaching of, of the church uh, uh, to all the people. And this includes uh, four aspects. If we're going to look at uh, this, uh, firstly, the, the, uh, the preaching and the proclamations of the, uh, the corporate body of the bishops. Secondly, the uh, universal custom or practice associated with dogma, uh, and thirdly, the consensus or agreement of the church fathers and theologians, and fourthly, from a lesser aspect, uh, nevertheless still important, the, the common or general understanding of the faithful. And this this aspect we'll come back to some some more uh, details uh, later. But today we're just going to give you a brief understanding of what we mean by these four points. As regards, firstly, the uh, the preaching and proclamation of the corporate body of bishops here is to be understood that the bishops preaching throughout the world but with the Roman pontiff form one corporate body uh, together they are infallible when uh, declaring a teaching on faithful morals. Secondly, as regards the, uh, the practice of the church uh, associated with dogma, that is uh, the customs and things, among the customs and practices which have been closely joined to dogma, we mentioned especially the, the public rites used in the solemn celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass or the administration of the sacraments, 
Also, the formulas of prayers and various feasts or offices instituted by the church or sacred practices which have been associated with doctrine. For a practice of the church to become a, a criterion of faith, there are two uh, requirements. Firstly, that the practice be necessarily connected with dogma or dogmatic truth. For in imposing a practical or practice or, or custom, the church, by that very fact, orders that dogmas connected with this practice must be adhered to. And secondly, that the custom of this kind be universal or approved at least tacitly by the infallible authority. The third point as regards the agreement of the church fathers and theologians, and this point is quite important for us to understand that. Uh, <clears throat> but who are we talking about firstly when we speak about the, the church fathers? It's not your local priest. It's those uh, great minds of antiquity. Uh, they are the, the fathers of those men who were distinguished for their sanctity and their doctrine, who in the first centuries of the church made the church renowned by their writings and who received full approbation from the church, or at least in an implicit manner. The church teaches then that the church, uh, the fathers of the church speak uh, as witnesses of the church when they teach that a doctrine has been revealed or has been accepted by the universal church or that a doctrine must be so held that it cannot be denied without the loss of faith or cannot be called into doubt. Similarly, they speak as witnesses uh, to the faith when they assert that a contrary opinion is heretical or opposed to the word of God. The rules to be followed here are that the morally unanimous agreement of the fathers declaring that a doctrine is defide is a certain argument of divine tradition. Three conditions are necessary that an argument be considered uh, certain, that it is related to a doctrine pertaining to the faith or morals, that the testimony be uh, free of doubt, and that it be firm that the church fathers declared positively that the doctrine is a doctrine of the church. It is this way that the faith or the belief of the universal church can be certainly known. Secondly, the testimony of one father or many fathers in matters of faith or morals is a probable argument, the force of which increases as the number and the authority of the fathers increase. Thirdly, when the fathers disagree, when the church fathers disagree, their authority offers no firm argument. Rather, it proves that the matter on hand has not been explicitly defined, for if a matter had been clearly defined, then the fathers could not have defended the contrary opinion without being condemned by the church as heretics. If the, the disagreement is manifest, we must confess that the certain uh, fathers have erred, for as individuals they are fallible, they are limited. To, in every case, their words must be treated with respect. We must not attribute error to them because they did not have the knowledge of more explicit definitions uh, when uh, as time progressed, and we'll look at this question later on. The authority of the theologians, uh, that is, uh, the great minds of the church, that many of them have been given this title, Doctor of the Church, like St. Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, and others. Uh, the theologians of the church can be considered as witnesses of the faith. In regard to their authority, the following rules are set forth by the church. When theologians unanimously teach that something is not only true, but that it, it must be accepted in the, the Catholic faith, such consensus on their part presents a certain argument. If all proclaim that some doctrine uh, 
in regard to the faith and morals as true or certain, it, it, it must be said to be rash to reject this doctrine. If there is a division of opinion amongst the different schools, even the, if the theologians of one school hold uh, their opinion as certain or another one very close to the faith, no obligation exists of accepting such opinion as de fide, but we cannot just uh, ignore such an opinion or, or say that um, it, uh, it go against it very lightly. The common understanding of the faithful, and what's meant by this? Uh, what the church understands by this is that the real doctrine can be discovered not only among the clergy, but also among the faithful who, with a common or general understanding, profess a unanimous faith. Now, in order that this common understanding be a criterion of revelation, it must be, one, certain and clear, two, unanimous, and thirdly, concerned uh, with important matters of faith and morals. So, in short, I've given you some of the basic uh, distinctions and understanding uh, things that impose themselves on uh, the magisterium, the voice of the church, uh, in order for us to begin to understand clearly that this teaching of authority is very limited in its scope, and it's limited primarily to, to faith and morals, as we said before, but also that those who exercise this authority can err, and I insist on that, they can err when they're not speaking on matters of faith or morals uh, in which they intend to bind the faithful. Uh, and here I just want to just quote, I'm going to quote several uh, theologians, but I'll just quote two more important ones, uh, Father Herder, uh, 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 a Jesuit, who was a well-known qualified member of the Spanish Inquisition, and his uh, theological dogmatic uh, manual points out that uh, if uh, grave and solid reasons, above all theological ones, present themselves to the mind of the faithful against decisions of the authentic magisterium, either episcopal or pontifical, it will be licit for him to fear error assent conditionally or even to suspend assent. Why? Because the, the ordinary magisterium can err uh, when it's the, not the, the use being used in an extraordinary way. So again, I quote uh, the famous uh, manual of uh, Deinkampf, uh, non-infallible acts of the magisterium of the Roman pontiff do not demand an absolute and definitive subjection. The obligation to adhere to them could uh, begin to cease in the case when a man capable of judging the question after a very diligent and painstaking analysis of all the reasons arrives at the conviction that error was introduced into the decision. Now, I will add uh, on this point that it's very clear also uh, after the papal definition of infallibility by Vatican I, it's very clear in the minds of uh, the, the church that these uh, this question of infallibility referred to dog, uh, dogmatic facts and not necessarily to the church's discipline or things proposed by the ordinary non-infallible magisterium. Uh, this is this point here uh, is very important as we confront this to look at the, the question of uh, resisting a, a pope. But with all that I've said, I think uh, there's obviously going to be some... some uh, important objections and I, one of the most common objection is to all this and it's a fair objection and we want to look at it uh, somewhat in our next talk and that is who is it that interprets the ancient faith isn't it the living magisterium the, the present uh, cardinals bishops pope uh, 
aren't they the ones who tell us how to understand the tradition of the past? Uh, and if that's the case, then on what basis do we dare uh, oppose them uh, by appealing to tradition? Well, we're going to look at this in more detail in my, my next talk. Uh, I just want to conclude today's talk with the words of uh, a well-known layman, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, who's a famous uh, German uh, Catholic philosopher and theologian who Pius XII called uh, the great 20th century doctor of the church. And even though he's not certainly not a doctor of the church, what he points out here in this statement is, is quite important for us to grasp. He says that loyalty towards the Holy Father, which is nobly intended, but in which practical decisions of the Pope are accepted in the same way as ex-cathedral definitions or encyclicals dealing with questions of faith or morals, which are always in full harmony with the tradition of the Church and the Magisterium, he says this loyalty is really false and unfounded. It uh, places uh, insoluble problems before the faithful in regard to the history of the Church. In the end, this false loyalty can only endanger the true Catholic faith. And it is this danger, uh, dear friends, that we must be aware of when we try to respectfully confront and uh, oppose the erroneous ideas that we uh, can see have infected the mindset of uh, the present hierarchy. And so this is uh, my thoughts for you today on the question of the magisterium.